going into Leviticus chapter 10, um, looking at this. And, and this is a very interesting chapter here. Uh, at the end, we'll um, do the prayer time request in your group. And then, like I said, give it, give it back up at the front and Pastor Theron will grab them and we'll get them relisted there. But uh, obviously still sitting in Leviticus. I remember in uh, high school, I used to do wood carving, so I, I enjoyed it. It was an interest that I'd had for years. My grandfather did wood inlay, um, but before high school, I just dabbled in it. I tried to make something. I still even have my granddad's drawing of the house I was supposed to wood inlay, and I think I glued three pieces of wood on. I never quite got that down, but it was high school um, where I got serious about wood carving, and by serious, I mean I started taking lessons from a guy in our church, it was his hobby and passion. Uh, he even went to Switzerland. I think it was Switzerland or somewhere up in the mountains where they do wood carving uh, in Europe. And he spent two weeks there studying at a special wood carving school. It wasn't his profession, uh, but he was very good at wood carving. And so I went weekly to carve with him. Mondays, I think it was. My mom drove me until I got my license and I carved all the way through 11th grade. The fact is to get good at carving, and I did improve considerably, actually ended up winning in 11th grade, won a national Christian school competition for, and I was going to bring uh, what I called Moses. Uh, it was interesting, Christian school competition, and it was a wood spirit, and so I named it Moses so it wouldn't throw off the judges uh, because they were a little bit, uh, a little bit judgmental there. So I knew just call it Moses and I'd be good to go, but ended up winning that. Um, here's the idea when you wanted to learn to carve, and this was fascinating, uh, the, the wood spirit or Moses was carved into a cedar log. So I had a cedar log. And so my teacher was teaching me how to carve a face. And what you naturally do when you start carving is your very flat face. So you start carving right away the eyes, but really your eyes sit really far back when you have to break down how to draw a face and how to lay it out. I don't really enjoy drawing. I doodle like anyone else, maybe doodles. I uh, see some of you at church doing that. But either way, I, I see you guys doodling. And, but that's different than drawing, right? So we were getting into the mechanics of drawing. What is a face shape like? What's the proportion? Where do you place the eyes? Because it's going to be three-dimensional. These are things that weren't in my interest category. I, I didn't care about drawing in art that way. But my teacher said, hey, he showed me some of his early carvings, very flat-faced. And so we, we worked on this. I remember he was carving a bust of a general, and he started, and it looked great to me, and I came back the week later, and he said, I had to carve off everything I did because the eyes were too far forward. I had to carve back deeper. Uh, so it was, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to do that with Moses. That's going to be a flat-faced Moses is what it's going to be. But either way, um, you, you learned how to, how to draw. You had to be committed to get training from someone who could carve. Now, sadly, if you're saying, oh, Kenny, can you carve me something? I cannot I peaked at 11th grade, and now I have a wood carving I've been working on for 25 years, and it still looks like nothing. So the last thing I did with wood carving is I think it was Carter Whitley was into carving, and I had some good wood to carve. And I'm like, better give it to a kid that's going to actually do something with the wood here. Uh, so I've lost it. But I, I use that illustration because to carve, you can't dabble in it. If you're going to carve well, if you're going to actually do this, you're going to have to dive in and you have to get serious. It has to be your hobby. It has to be your passion. You have to do this. And, and even though carving is an art, it's a creative process, right? We think of artists, right? They just kind of free-for-all personalities. Uh, and it's a process of personal expression of the all words we hear. It does require discipline and structure. You have to work with something. So I carved wood. 
but when you're carving wood, you have to be cognitive of the grain of the wood, how it's going to go. Cedar has its own set of problems. Uh, when you're carving it, it's not, it's not a light wood. I should have picked something that was a lot softer. It lasts long, but there's nuances to it. If there's a knot in the wood or something like that, you have to understand your medium. If it's stone or if it's clay, all things respond differently. You need to learn and understand body structure and positioning. You have to know how to understand weights and balances. One of the first things I carved was a little Santa Claus figure. And uh, good luck getting that to stand up any time because it just topples over. Why? Because they didn't distribute the weight correctly. Uh, and so you look at all these things, things that you don't think are part of that carving process, but it takes specific things. And I put here, there are a plethora of things to obey and follow if you want your art to be appealing. If you want your carving to actually look good, and I use carving is because that's what I did. You have to follow the rules. You have to follow through on it. There is a way to do it. Yes, there's some freedom of expression on how you carve. You're going to have a certain personality that comes through in your carving, but you're going to follow structure if that art's ever going to be appealing. I think, though, um, we understand that, right? We understand structure behind the expression. We understand the idea of training we understand the adherence to detail. If you're in a profession, you understand you have to do it a certain way. You may be good at your job, but there's also components that require you to follow, quote unquote, the rules. I have a cousin um, and his, uh, he and his brothers own a very well, third largest greenhouse in the United States. Uh, he's a gifted salesperson. You would say he's a natural at it. He also got trained by Procter & Gamble, and I still remember being at a meeting one time. This is 15, well, it's probably 20 years ago now, and I'm standing at a meeting, and I'm hearing him talk about things at Procter & Gamble. Even back then, he was gifted at his job, very gifted, but he follows the rules of how to sell and market, and so things will work. No matter what you do, there's structure to it, and there's a point where you get serious about it, that you're going to buckle down and do your job. Well, We've just completed chapters 8 and 9 of Leviticus, and that is the institution of the priesthood, the ordination of Aaron and sons to the privileged role, and I want you to catch that word, privileged role of leading worship for the nation of Israel, a process that made clear that worship is serious and done by God's rule. I'm going to put a note here. I'll mention it later. The second someone starts talking about worship like it's whatever they want to do, you know they have problems. I don't matter what they want to do, what the, what, what the thing is out there, but when worship is defined by them, you know you have issues. Well, sadly, Aaron's two oldest sons chose to deviate from what God had said. Here's the interesting thing. We don't know exactly what that deviation was. There's speculation. We do know they did what God hadn't told them to do. They offered strange fire and offered incense. I don't think they were offering it to a pagan idol, but they did something that God said was punishable by death in the sense that they broke the rules that God had just gave them, and they paid for it with their lives. I put here as a point to ponder before we dive in. I want us to process that a bit as we study this chapter. Um, worship is something that we have individualized, and there is an individual component to it. You know that, right? If you look around on Sunday, and I stand up here, and I'm typically up here when people are listening to preaching, so I see even then it's maybe a little bit more muted how people might worship, but 
Every one of you are different. Heather says, I'm the worst person to talk to because I fold my hands like this and rest them right on my belly, and that's how I stare at you, deadpan the whole time. And she says, you look like you hate that person. I'm like, I don't. I'm just comfortable right now. And some of you are like that. I look out at you, I'm like, oof, but I don't care if you hate me, so I just keep going, you know, just moving on. But I know because I'm this person. I'm this expressionless person. You can tell the funniest joke, and I'll chuckle. That's about all you're going to get out of me. Heather's going to laugh out loud. I mean, that's, that's a great person to talk to, right? These people that respond back to you, I know I'm the worst person to talk to, so I can't hold anything against you. I mean, I did nothing because... But all of us worship differently. There is an individual component to it. When you watch people sing... There's a difference in how people may approach singing, and there's no wrong or right there. I'm going to say that if you're not singing, that's not a worshipful position. But some people sing, and and their whole body gets engaged in it. Some people are, again, like me, where uh, I cannot sing and move my hands. I can either move my hands or sing out of tune, but I cannot do both at the same time. When we do the song where we clap, I have to look at my little kids and say, okay, just move your hands. When they move the hands, I cannot stay in time or tune. Uh, It's not there. And all of those things are beautiful and distinct for our Lord. The issue, and this is what's happening with these guys, is when individualization has gone too far. It's not within the boundaries of God's word and his plan. Nadab and Abihu stand as clear warnings to such liberties. They are... I'm not saying that if you do this wrong, you're going to fall down dead in church. I don't want you to do that. That would scare everyone away. But the fact is, they are representative of people who say, I can do what I want. At some point in their heart, they chose to do what God wanted. And I'm sorry, they chose to do what they wanted and didn't regard what God wanted. Worship became about them, not about what God wanted. And they show us the danger of making worship our way, no matter how small that is, and the consequences of self-indulgent, and I'm going to say self-centered worship. What is the one problem that they had? They were self-centered. They chose to offer a fire that was not what God had asked for. They made a decision about worship, even though God had just told them exactly what to do. Don't forget the timing of this, How many of you have kids and you've told them something and they forgot it after two weeks? That's something you want them to do. And you say, hey, you remember I told you two weeks ago, you need to to try to remember this, build this habit. Versus you tell your kids to go clean their room or go clean up their toys or go get in the car. And then three seconds later, they're they're doing something else. And you're like, "I, I just told you. And my favorite one is when I never asked this question, but Heather says, did you not hear me? Now they're forced to, do you want to carry this lie through or you want to just take the punishment there? And I watch, it's so funny, different kids, <laughs> which ones try to walk their way out of it. I'm like, oh, that one's for sales. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, you look at them, and at some point they say yes. And then Heather asks that next awkward question that moms are able to do. Why didn't you obey me? And I watch my sons just blank, you know, because we're boys. You know, <laughs> this is the answer they could give. But, you know, they're struck by, because it's the immediacy, right? I just told you what to do, and you're just doing the opposite of that. That's blatant what? disobedience, right? It's not forgetfulness there. I want you to recognize something about these two sons. They didn't forget something. Number two, I'm giving all these illustrations about teens and younger kids. These were grown men. Aaron's 80. His kids aren't 13. They're not even 18. They're grown. They're probably my age. They know what they're doing. 
They recognize it. And what we're going to see in the most dramatic and drastic of ways, what doing worship our way amounts to, and I want you to notice something, that there are consequences. Whoever has reading number one, if they don't mind popping up, grabbing the mic, and reading through this. We're in Leviticus chapter 10. I'll let you know so you can follow along uh, in your Bible as well. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. All right, verse 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, there's some key things I want you to notice here. One is the action. What, what, was, what prompted the discipline from the Lord and its unauthorized fire? And I underline this in my notes. Underline this. If you underline your Bible, underline this, which God had not commanded. What did they offer? Something that God had, had not commanded. In other words, it wasn't that God said, don't offer that fire. They offered something that God had not told them to do. So they made a decision on their own. Oh, we could use this fire. Why don't we use our own fire? I made this cool fire out of this, this, and this. Let's use this fire. But God had said, you offer the incense offering from that fire, from a very specific place, because the altar was purified, right? And then the offerings were purified, and they burned continually there. And they apparently made a decision that, hey, that fire is not what we want to use. We want our own fire. Maybe a fire from home, maybe a new fire they set. Whatever it is, we don't know the reasoning. I think God does that on purpose because um, if you read the commentators, the, the, the speculation goes everywhere from drunk to open rebellion to everything under the sun. And here's the reality. The details of what was done, even the motives behind it, are not spelled out in Scripture. And I put in parentheses because I think it's helpful. That was the choice of the Holy Spirit. That the details were not what we need. It's not what the nation of Israel needed. They needed to know that they got punished for doing something that God did not command. They broke God's law. And I think what's helpful to us is as we walk into worship, because could you imagine if we knew exactly their motives behind what they did and exactly what they were thinking and exactly what they did and what would we avoid doing? Exactly that. And we would never apply the principle beyond that. And the nation of Israel would have done the same thing because the next two sons were like, well, don't offer that fire, but I wonder about this fire here, right? They could do something else. And so I want you to recognize sometimes when we don't know in scripture and people are grasping at straws and trying to pull it out, they're trying to pull information that the Holy Spirit didn't give. And I think he's God and we're not. And so let's trust what he's shown us and recognize the, the reason, because the principle is clear in action or activity that was done outside the bounds of what God had commanded. What is the result? Death by fire. And I don't want you to miss that. How did chapter 9 end? And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. They were filled with joy 
when God sent his fire to, to light the offering. And then I want you to recognize that death by fire, the first one was a response to correct worship. It was an affirmation. And what resulted was joy in the people. And then when something was wrong, a fire came in judgment on sin and presumptuous behavior and resulted in mourning and loss. But don't miss that God used fire both times. Because you're like, oh man, there comes the fire. Oh, I want all the, I want, I believe in this part of God. I don't believe in that part of God. You ever heard that? I believe in the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament. That's just a, that's a dictator God. That's a horrible God. That's a jealous God. That's a, this type of God. Same God. Well, I believe in Jesus. Same God. They're one. He shows up in his personhood in the Old Testament as well. We see that throughout at times. But same God, we love to distinguish, right? And, and God here in his judgment used the same thing he used in his affirmation. He showed them the same sending, fire. Correct worship, burnt the offering. Bad, sinful, rebellious worship, it killed them. They weren't burnt to a crisp because they were carried out in the clothes that they wear. So the fire killed them. It didn't consume them. It just burned them. What's the lesson? And that's verse three. Moses shares a truth from God to Aaron. And it's something that Leviticus talks about. He says, I will be sanctified. In other words, God is holy and he will be treated as such. He's right and he's righteous. And what he does is correct. And we're not going to put any stain against it. It is a very dangerous place to be when you start hurling accusations against God, when you start doubting what God has said. There's seriousness behind that. Why? Because he's holy. These sons walked up and said, we can do what we want. We don't have to be set apart. We don't have to do things God's way. It's not important to do things God's way. And God says, I will be sanctified. The word sanctified is set apart. I will be set apart. I am not to be dragged down to your level. I am holy and will be treated as holy. And then he goes on, I will be glorified. God is to be glorified in worship. God is to be set apart in worship. And what does that tell us, right? If he's set apart, if he's, he's distinct, when we come to worship, who are we worshiping? Him. Anyone else can tie into that? Absolutely not. Because that's what they did. You go and worship and you find any of the glory going to anyone else but God, and you've got tainted worship. I don't care how well they sing. I don't care how well they mix the music. I don't even care how well the preacher preaches. If worship is not to God alone, if he is not set apart, then something's wrong. And then on top of that, he says, I will be glorified, as in his name is lifted up. Amongst who? Before how many people? All the people. You ever wonder who you need to lift God's name up to? There you go. Now, an Israelite reads that, and what do they think? Because typically they would fall into the trap of saying, Israel, that's one of the things Israel missed. It's, it's their, their, their biggest condemnation. They were to be a light to all nations. And they became, by the time you have Christ on the scene, they looked at everyone else as just beneath them because they're the only ones. 
Christ confronted them. They used to shake their, I mean, when the whole shaking the dust off, you ever read about that in the gospel? And he says, shake the dust off your feet from people that don't receive you. That's because Jewish people, if they went into a pagan land, would before coming into Israel, shake the pagan dirt off their feet and step in. Can you imagine if you lived on the line? What are you doing? I don't want your dirt in my country. You're beneath me. My sand's different than your sand. I mean, this is, this is the mentality. They would go extra miles not to go through a certain land, Samaria, right? We will walk around it. We will add to our trip. We will take the long way so that we don't become polluted by you. In other words, they became inwardly focused, but from Abraham on, they've been called to be a light to the nations. And so God says, when you worship me, I will be glorified in, in front of all the people. Here's the interesting thing. Worship is for his glory always. It is to lift him up, to praise him, to obey him, to grow in him. It is about him. And Nadab and Abihu did something that was not about God. Does the weight of worship kind of come down a little bit? Have we, and think about this honestly, and even in your own heart and mind, I'm even thinking about myself. How many times do I come in and it's still centered on myself. It's very easy to do that, how I feel. And it's, and, and Carrie, you could probably attest to it, right? If you're preaching, you, you, you do, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to have a gut ache. I guarantee you that when you go up to preach, you don't want to feel sick. You want to feel sharp. You want to feel attentive. What is that all about? It's about yourself. It's very easy to slip into self-centered worship. It's very easy to think, well, I got to bring it. I got to do this. I want to make sure that I hope they sing well. I hope the piano plays well. I hope this and all the things we want to do well. But what do we, we, we tend to shift our focus to about us. I hope I have a good time at church. I hope I talk to the people I like. I hope I fellowship with people. I hope the friends I like come there. I hope I have a good cup of coffee. I hope I have good snacks. I hope someone made good snacks. I hope the, the list goes on. I hope he's not boring like he usually is. I hope, I hope, but, but it's all about the experience that we're going to have. We're supposed to walk in a church with a driving passion to worship God that we will sing for his glory, whether we can sing in tune or not. That's the beautiful thing about Christian singing is that, that God doesn't care. God finds beautiful even a Van Hoven voice. And trust you me, you want bad singing, just sit in a row with me and my dad and my brothers. And it is, he can, not only does he sing out of tune, he can't even pronounce the words. So it just, it goes all the way. It's, it's a whole mixed bag here, you know? We got the whole mix going there. The fact is God finds it beautiful not because he's tone deaf, but because worship is beautiful to him. That's unique to, to Christianity. That's unique to believers, to God's children. And I know it because some of you have kids that can't sing, right? And then they sing to you. Have you ever had kids say, what do you think? Oh, sing to mom. Yeah, <laughs> that was nice. That was very loud. You know, that's good. I like loud. Loud's good. Yeah. My one joy when I was, uh, we were at my father-in-law's church there for years, and my brother-in-law leads singing, and uh, Heather can sing, he can sing, uh, and I sat in the front row, which was a big change for me. I, I appreciate back row people. I was a back row person. I didn't want no one looking at the back of my head. That's why I preach. You only look at the front now. You can't see the back. It, I, to date Heather, if I wanted to sit next to the girl I was chasing, I had to move to the front. That was a big you know, sacrifice for me. Um, but I sat in the front and my biggest joy was to sing super loud to see if I could throw my brother-in-law off because I knew that I was out of tune. I knew he's in tune, see what happens. I still get a kick out of it when I visit. I'm like, I'm going to go in the front row. I'm going to sing as loud as I can right here in front of Mike and see what can happen. 
you got to have fun with it, right? You're gifted in certain ways, and that's not one of them for me. Uh, either way, that's unique, right? We worship God, takes that heartfelt worship, and that is what he wants from us. But it is to be for him sanctified, and it is to be for his glory. He is elevated. And they chose to do something that didn't bring him glory and that did not set him apart. They, in whatever they did, turned worship away from God, even if that wasn't their intent, and they knew better. And I, again, I want to remind you, they just walked through the ordination process. And if we remember 8 and 9, God was pretty serious about that, right? How many, how many days did they repeat the same thing? Seven days. And then after seven days, what did Aaron have to offer for himself yet again? Sin offering. There was no joking here. Uh, I want you to notice a response, and I'll mention this at the end. I think this is one of Aaron's shining moments, chapter 10. I think he responds in a way that is almost out of character for him in the fact that this is the golden calf boy. This is the one that, again, 80-year-old, so he's not a young guy. But, and Aaron kept quiet. I think he understood the weight of it. The golden calf maker has grasped the weight of God's glory. He understands who he is in relation to the Almighty. And so he does not rant and rave. He doesn't argue. He doesn't defend his sons. And you might think, what a terrible father. Why didn't he stand up for his sons? He loved them. He's heartbroken. This is not something that he took lightly. It's not like, oh, good, didn't kill the favorite ones, the two that I didn't like those anyway. This is, this is pain that he's walking through. Why doesn't he argue? Because he is going to honor God, and he recognizes that his sons did not. That's a big move, isn't it? And I put these words, painful yet truthful. And I want you to pause for one second, because I want you to put yourself in Aaron's shoes. These aren't, these aren't, even if, I know, no matter what your kids do, there's that unconditional love we offer to our children, right? But these kids weren't like black sheep running around doing horrible things. These aren't the wicked. They, they, they made a wicked decision. Think about losing your child that way. Be Aaron for a second. Just process that. And that's how I want you to see, because in this chapter, Aaron shines even as it closes and he, and he answers Moses, he shines. Because he walks through what is very painful, yet is very truthful. Can we do what is right, what is glorifying and sanctifying, even though it is painful? That one really hit me because I kept, I highlighted in my Bible where he put, he's silent, he did this, every response that was correct. And don't miss that. Aaron kept quiet. Moses was not just speaking about Nadab and Abihu when he says he needs to be sanctified and glorified. He was also speaking to Moses and the other sons because in their moment of agony, God must be sanctified and God must be glorified. You'll notice as we read through this that he does not get to mourn because his mourning would have been a question of God's rightness. And as the priest, he couldn't mourn. Now, as the high priest, he wasn't allowed to attend any funeral uh, in that way. The sons, by law, are, were supposed to be allowed to bury their brothers. They're typically allowed to do that. They weren't the high priest. They are not allowed to do that. 
I put here, sin is always messy and the direct consequences needed to be handled, yet the normal burial process and mourning could not be followed. Again, high priests can't do it. Um, why couldn't they do it? Just to see that God's not petty. Corpses cause defilement. Think about this. When death, and then I'm going to show the Bible project thing at some point doing this, but remember how when he drew the picture, he drew in the center of that, he drew the impurity and the things that are unclean and it links down and a dead body links to death. What is death linked to? Why do we have death? Sin, right? So it's not holy. And so as a symbol of distinction, they would not defile themselves with a dead body. Normally, Eliezer and Ithamar would have been allowed to bury their brothers, but not this time. And I put instead we find other arrangements. So whoever has reading number two, if they don't mind reading chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. And Moses called Michelle and Elizaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the words of Moses. The brothers are taken out by Aaron's cousins, which is just fascinates me. It seems obvious to me that it's Aaron's cousins, only one commentator. Everyone else said it was Eliezer's cousins, which it's not. It's Aaron's cousins carry him out. Um, it's not the brothers. They're carried out in their priestly coats to be buried. It's not like they said, strip him out of that priestly stuff. We don't want... God's not hiding from reality. They were ordained priests that broke his law and faced the consequences of it, but they still were buried in priestly garb. I do want you to see the hints that are constant in Leviticus of God's mercy and his grace. What would we do? You could have a king that has this and someone betrays him. They're going to remove all connection, right? An earthly king, all connection to him at all. And notice that God didn't do that. They were buried in what was specially made for priests, what they were ordained in. God doesn't run from truth because he is truth. And God extends mercy and grace because they're buried in their priestly garments. Yet Aaron, the dad, and Eliezer, Ithamar, the brothers, are forbidden to mourn. If they mourned, they die, and they bring God's wrath on the whole congregation, which is the leadership. Whenever you see the people or the congregation in there, it means the leadership, uh, that, that group of people that were watching the ordination. You do this, I kill every leader. You die, leaders die. The point is this, and Gordon Wenham said it best, I'm going to quote him, the surviving priest, even though they were brothers, had to identify themselves entirely with God's viewpoint and not arouse any suspicion that they condoned their brother's sin. In a very difficult situation, in a painful loss of brothers and sons, don't forget there's wives and there's children and grandkids. There is a loss that is going to carry forward. It's not a one-day loss. Death has that <coughs> horrible sting, doesn't it? That it can go further than that one day. And they had to make sure that everything they did 
pointed to God's rightness, that they had to sanctify God in their hearts, and they had to do that in what I would consider excruciating circumstances, rending the hair, loosening the clothes. This was normal expressions of grief. This is what you did when you mourned the loss of somebody. It was normal behavior. This was not excessive behavior. This was typical. They were not allowed to do it. And why? They had just been set aside as God's special servants, set aside to represent God to the people, and they needed to fully represent him through this matter. God demanded 100% of their loyalty. Now, it says the anointing oil was on them. It's not that they're like, well, can't wait till this oil dries so I can go more my brother. That's the, the, the idea behind that is they were set aside for God, and God in this moment says 100% loyalty. It's every time. So they need to make sure no one is confused that God is right. But then what does God give to them and even for the brothers. They, Aaron and the two brothers, may not mourn. Who else gets to mourn? Who else is almost commanded to mourn? What does it say? Everyone else. You're not going to mourn, but I want to see God's grace and mercy. I want the whole nation to mourn. Does that mean the whole nation is against God? Not at all. That's God's grace and mercy again. I can't have you confuse the people, but the people are going to mourn the loss that they see. These people are going to be buried in their priestly garments. They've lost two priests in this. The people see the seriousness of sin. They mourn that, but they're mourning the loss. That's what you, you cry and mourn over that. The whole nation mourned rightfully for the lost brothers, and Aaron the father and Ithamar and Eliezer the brothers rightfully did not mourn so that they could represent who? God. Their job was to represent God. And so their absolute loyalty was to God. And then God in his unbelievable grace and mercy has two million people mourn for the two brothers. Do you think two million people mourning could be heard by Aaron and the two brothers? I want you to understand, because we, we, we lose it. Like, oh, they're out of camp. They're home. Oh, we're sitting here. No one's around. It's like a boring time. Why did God make us stay in the tabernacle? No, they're outside the camp. But two million people mourning is going to be a noise that they would hear of unbelievable love and support that God has graciously ordained will be given while Aaron and Ithamar and Eliezer stand for God and say what God did was right. So we see how they are putting God first and in front of everything, he's always first, and how God in his graciousness allowed the mourning to take place, the grieving of a whole nation. And Aaron and Eliezer and Ithamar are going to be able to hear that. Uh, What does scripture say? And they did according to the word of Moses. And I want you to understand what that means. They publicly made God first. They obviously made God first, even in the tough circumstance, the family circumstance that was before them. No, their decision did not negate the love that they had for their brothers. Uh, Their decision was not hateful, yet their decision was specific. God first, God foremost. And I put as a question, do we have the same courage and commitment today? Will we make God first even when it requires loving distancing from close family? 
maybe it requires us to have a grip on our emotions and how we react to them. I've watched a family, uh, it was, it's actually at my father-in-law's church, walk through a heart-rending circumstance. They had a son engage in perverse lifestyle and persist in that lifestyle. They still love their son. Um, they had to distance themselves from that son for the good of their grandkids and their other children. They make efforts to see that son, reach that son, um, all those things, but they had to put loving distance. Why? And the dad told the son, God is first. And you come in and promote a godless lifestyle. You don't even, it didn't even exist. He had to promote it, you know. Um, there's times when we put loving distance from close family, not for personal reasons. So don't, don't, don't let this be a selfish vendetta. When it's obvious that there's a need for distance, are we able to do that? I'm not saying it's easy. But it's, are we going to, in our personal decisions and emotions, do what is God first or what is our emotions first? I put here, how many are swayed from long-held, serious biblical convictions by the sin of a close relative or friend? The wrong emotion to make someone you love right when they're obviously wrong. I've watched this happen. People who know God's word and, and have publicly talked about it face the struggle of someone breaking God's word that they love dearly and they cannot in their mind say sin is sin for fear of tainting something here. And what they do is they move from God to here for fear of saying wrong is wrong and saying, I side with God. And look, it's not easy. When someone you love, someone you're close to is resisting truth, it's hard. But God first. I put here, let's still love them. We're not allowed to cut them off. See, that's our other emotion, right? (laughs) Well, God first, so there's the divide. I'm never talking to you again, God first. No, that's not. I want you to see what God did there. They were loyal to God. How many people mourned their loss? Two million. It was known. I put here in my notes, let's still love them, but love them in line with God's take on them and in light of his priority and his glory. We're going to be talking to Peter on Sunday. And this this idea. It says, don't answer evil for eviling, reviling for reviling, but bless them. And I was reading through, what does it mean to bless them? Well, God doesn't go against himself. So if someone's sinning against you, you don't say, bless you, my child. I'm so happy you did that. That's not what he's saying. It talks about a real serious commitment to pray for their salvation, to pray for them to get right with the Lord, to pray for their, their, if it's their circumstance, whatever it may be. You're serious about the situation and how they can be blessed by you. And the best blessing you can give is a proclamation of what? The gospel, God's love. And that's what it means when we shift over. You are going to love them in line with God's take on them and in light of his priority and his glory. And I should have added in my notes, his purpose. It requires us to have God's perspective and understand that when we walk into worship, Nadab and Abihu teach us have God's perspective in worship. No doubt, I'm sure Aaron and family were reeling the context of the passage shows that he was not aware of what his sons were doing. It's not, it's not like he said, go do that. They got killed for it. He's like, whew, that was, I'm so sorry I did that. 
In other words, he wasn't responsible for their decision. He didn't leave something undone. But what father doesn't still feel the weight of responsibility pressing down in that situation, even when they know that's not their decision? He didn't make the decision. He, he, they, they acted on their own, yet he is the high priest. These are his sons. That responsibility presses down. He may have even thought about his example with the golden calf. What did he do with worship with the golden calf? Perverted it, right? Yet it was his sons paying the life price further deviation. Did Aaron deviate from worship? Oh, making golden calf, calling it Lord, making it a representation of God. At least he kept that link there. But he's, he's, I don't know. What do you think he wonders about after two out of five priests are taken out of the equation for sinning? Should he be high priest? Right? That would be a natural thought, right? I don't know if I'm qualified for this. I don't, know if, I don't know if this disqualifies me from what we need to do. But God, again, in his mercy and grace, clears that up. And, and this is what I find fascinating. And reading number three can pop up here. God does it with a direct address. This is, I believe, the only time in Leviticus that we see God speaking directly to Aaron. It's not through Moses. Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So this is an interesting thing. As I mentioned, this is direct address to Aaron by God. This doesn't happen anywhere else. And God starts off by telling Aaron to avoid wine and strong drink when they're serving the Lord. And understand what he's saying. Avoid something that clouds your discernment and memory. Don't walk into our service. What does that remind you of? God is particular about how he will be worshipped. He did not give rules as suggestions. He gave rules as rules, their commands. He's not hinting, he's telling. Now, some people think this links to the error of the sons, but really it actually connects to what God is teaching Aaron concerning his role and that of all the priests. And that's where I think you see God going to Aaron and telling him what his work is so Aaron can understand the purpose. It says here, and that we may put difference, and that word, or make distinct, make obvious. He says, I'm going to make sure you make obvious between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses, tied to all the functioning of the priest, all the rituals, sacrifices, feasts, the clothes, the processes, was the purpose of reaching the hearts of Israel. Aaron, you have more to do than doing the steps that I've given you. This is not a thoughtless job. This is not a job that's just going through the rituals. We better make sure we take the 11 steps and not the 12th step. We better make sure we stand this way and do this, and that's all I have to do. God says to Aaron and says, I don't think you maybe understand everything, and he's speaking directly to him. You're to reach the heart of Israel. They were 
to distinguish and discern. And he says, you need to know what's the holy and clean and what is unholy or common, not set apart and unclean. I'm going to go to the Bible Project video just to help us understand something. What was all the things associated, death, unclean, unpure? We're going to get into this ritual purity. That's what he's distinguishing here. When you had a skin disease, remember the Gospels. When Christ heals a leper, where does he send him? To the priest. Because the priest discerns whether you're clean or not, whether it's over or not. They had a responsibility beyond just the sacrifices to be the judge in that sense, to be the discerner of what's unholy and holy, what's unclean and what's clean. They have all these things because they link to death, to what is impure, because we don't have clean and holy mixed with impurity. And so God is reminding Aaron, speaking directly to him, is that you have a job to distinguish and discern. Death, uncleanliness, impurity was connected to sin and the consequences of it. It was a reminder of that condition of humanity, which is what we're going to talk about in 11 and 12. And the priest is that discerning voice. So to see clearly to discern clearly, they could have nothing blocking or distorting their view. You can't come in with your perception off because God's called you, Aaron and the priest, to discern. What are we called to do? Discern. We have a responsibility as believers to be discerning, to understand what is clean and unclean. It's, it's a job that's been given to us. Worship doesn't funnel through the priesthood, right? There's the idea of the priesthood of the believer. We have direct access to God, right? And so we carry some of the responsibilities, the principles that are there. We are to be discerning. Now, every Israelite was to discern. God didn't say, well, it's the priest's fault, not your fault. But he's telling Aaron what his job is, is to reach the heart of Israel, to be that teacher. And that's where the next one comes in. On top of discerning, they had to teach. Not only do they need to know the truth, to know God's perspective and law, they needed and were responsible to communicate that to the nation of Israel. It was their job to tell the people what God wanted. What are they teaching? Everything Moses is teaching you. In other words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, ultimately, those sons are going to end up teaching. Aaron dies before Moses. So you're going to walk through this. What's the action step, God wanted and wants more than just outward obedience. Those sons were killed because they did something wrong, but there was a heart issue behind that because you want to understand God saying, I want you to reach the heart. He wants more from us than the rituals. Instead, he desires the rituals to for reflect what is on the inside. What does he want Aaron to do? He wants him to be the high priest. And it's seen in outward actions, but it's a reflection of who he is inside. So ask yourself, does my worship reflect my heart? Have I given God that and my practices align with it? Do I give God my whole heart and worship? And so what you see is what reflects what's inside, or are we putting on a show for everyone else? Because who knows if your worship's real? God most certainly does. I think you can dupe anyone in here, right? You could come in and you could say the right things and sing the right way and 
talk the right way and fellowship the right way. And you could say, people, I did my rituals. I've done my rituals. I come into church and I do my ritual really well. And people think, wow, look at him or her. She worships. He worships. Look at that. They do that. Does it reflect your heart? Because God is telling Aaron, I want your heart. I want the rituals. I want it done right. I want it to reflect me, but I want it to be a reflection of who you are really inside. Now, as we noted last week, God worked heavily through Moses. And so chapter 8 and 9 and all the Pentateuch manifest that. So it's no wonder that what follows is instruction by Moses. God addresses Aaron directly. That's a gift of confirmation and affirmation. But now we get into yet another round of affirmation. And this is reading number 4. Uh, Leviticus 10, 12 through 18. Whoever has that one. Good. You can pop up here and grab the mic. That's going to be 12 through 18. I'm going to read a little bit while this. Moses is going to revisit in here the rights of a priest and by doing so affirm the role of Aaron and sons as the priest. And so we're going to hear him say that. And then he's going to ask some questions and we're going to see a little conflict arise between Moses and Aaron. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offering, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings to the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. What you find here is Moses is coming in and in an wave of affirmation saying, now remember, and I hope you can kind of pick up on it. Hey, on the grain offering, you're going to give a portion and the rest is for you. And then when you have a peace offering, right, you're going to wave the breast, but you're going to get the breast and the thigh. That's for you. And then he says, what happened to the sin offering that was offered for the people? Where's the goat? And what happens is he is upset with him, upset with Eliezer and Ethamar, because he says, you should have eaten that. And that is true. They're supposed to eat it. But what you're going to find is he's coming to them. And I want you to recognize what the main role of what Moses says, but they tie together. His main purpose is affirmation. He's saying things to them that they know, but he searches diligently because something wasn't done the way it was supposed to be done. And so what you see is affirmation that ends with tension between And this is really interesting. The letter of the law and the spirit of the law is what's going to come out. And what we find here 
is a gracious God and a humble Aaron and actually a humble Moses at the end. But first, I want us to look briefly at what, what we're talking about. What are the rights of the priest? From the grain offering, it is your due, for so I am commanded. Reiterating the things that we have learned, right? Then you go from the peace offering, what is due? This is as God's command you. It's yours forever. It doesn't end. Then he goes to the purification offering, and now we got our sticky moment. It's been made for the people, right? What does Moses say? You should have eaten it because the blood was not sprinkled in the where? In the holy place, in the tabernacle. When you sprinkle the blood in the holy place, remember, sin offering is a purification offering. It's a cleansing. So you sprinkle blood. When it goes in the tabernacle, you burn it all up because that's for the priest or for the congregation. But when it's offered for the people, and that's why Moses is like, hey, the goat, you should have eaten it. Didn't have its blood sprinkled in. They should know what the rules are, right? And Moses is not happy because he says, you're supposed to eat that as I commanded. In other words, you should have followed the letter of the law. Is Moses technically wrong about that? No. I said, now, before we hit the answer, I want you to see, and I think it's worth noting, the continued mercy of God by affirming Aaron and sons through Moses, as well as making abundantly certain Aaron knew the security of his calling. He made sure that he knew that's God's mercy again. And I hope we can see that even in the midst of a trying time, when Aaron's sons have disobeyed, God extends time and again his grace and mercy, his affirmation of Aaron's calling. And let's be honest, the sons just broke the letter of the law. God in his mercy has not punished them for it. Now we're going to see Aaron's answer. And I think it speaks to growth in him. And then you see the satisfaction of Moses and you recognize that Aaron kind of moved there. We serve a God of grace and mercy, a God who wants us to know his calling and affirmation. But we're still left with a sticky point. At the beginning of this chapter, someone offered strange fire and they were killed for it. And at the end of the chapter, you're supposed to eat something in a holy place. And it signified something. This is God's provision for you. You're working on behalf of them and God is providing for you. And you take God's provision and you burn it outside the camp. You just burn this thing up. So the sticky point comes up about the purification offering, which is all cleared up in what is Aaron's answer. So whoever is reading number five, you get to walk all the way up here for two verses. <laughs> we just wanted Eric's voice in the microphone. That's what we do that for. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Something. Moses is listening to Aaron's answer. Aaron explains his why. And this is what he says today. Two of my sons died because of their sin. They weren't holy. They didn't follow God's commands. We offered purification offering and we offered burnt offerings. He's talking about they, Ithamar, Eliezer, have offered. And even in this day, two sons are dead. And so as they approached eating what was holy, authorized for them, they chose to burn it instead but Moses said, hey, wait a second, you're supposed to eat it. And then Aaron asked a probing question. He wondered if God would have been pleased considering the circumstances. He wondered if God would accept keeping instead of the letter of the spirit of the law. 
And what's interesting is the answer was a resounding yes from Moses. God would accept in that instance. Yet I think we need to understand a little better what Aaron was trying to show by his actions. Otherwise, we might get tempted to write off the letter for the Spirit. Because there's a host of, I know this, this comes up. Well, I, I understand the spirit of it. You're a legalist, but I'm a spirit follower. No, this is not your sudden permission. I'm saying you, anyone in particular. I'm just saying it's not our sudden permission to be like, well, I'm going to find a way to obey my way. That's not what Aaron's doing. Understand, two sons died doing that. He's sharing something about what he thinks. And he's, he's doing this, and this is what he's saying. Aaron was actually displaying deep humility here, not belligerent resistance to God. I'm going to read another quote. Charles Erdman writes this, and it's a really old book. Actually, it stinks to high heaven whenever I read it. I'm like, wow, this is an old book because I'm reading it. Uh, but he writes this, by his actions, this is Aaron, he had revealed the secret of his soul. He had realized the holiness of God, right? Should I have eaten what was holy? Would God have been pleased if me, Aaron, whose two sons have died for being unholy in the most holy of work, would God have been pleased? And it says it revealed the secret of his soul. He'd realized the holiness of God demonstrated by the penalty inflicted on his sons. Aaron has done everything God has asked, but he does this. By not eating, he was confessing his own unworthiness as a priest of the holy God. In other words, Moses said, you had the right to eat it. And Aaron says, I'm not sure today I have the right to eat it. That I understand that I am still a depraved human being. That he understood who he was. Which teaches us something critical, does it not? Aaron understood God's mercy and grace, and he proved it by not eating what he was given to eat. Instead, he did recognize his depravity, and he responded in humility He showed his heart in that moment, and God was pleased, as affirmed by Moses with Aaron's heart. Why not eat what is holy? Who could eat what was holy? Go back through it. Who was this for? The priests. Who gave them the food? God. Where did they eat this food? In a holy place. So why not eat it? The belligerent sons were killed by fire. Applying the principle, God didn't strike them dead. This is not a belligerent act on his part. It is abject or correct humility in recognizing I'm not holy. That's what he's telling Moses. I understand who I am. What does Isaiah say about himself? Behold, I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. And I stand and live among a people of what? Unclean lips. Moses was God's man. And when Moses affirmed it, it was God affirming it. The question for us, though, is this. Do we show the same accuracy and humility? I I mentioned this because, again, I do think this is Aaron's shining moment. Uh, Erdman also closes his section on this super well. And I wanted to quote him uh, again. Thus, as the scene closes after this tragic event, the two famous brothers, Moses and Aaron, appear in a truly noble attitude of humility and meekness and show themselves worthy to be regarded as the leaders and the high priest of the people of God. Who does God have leading his people? What is, what is Moses known as? He was the what person? Meekest, right? He's a friend of God. But he's the meekest on all the earth. They talked about his, he's known for his meekness. Aaron 
the calf maker, his reputation isn't stellar, right? He, he's, he's, capitula- he, he's bent. I mean, if, if public pressure comes in, he's changing his mind. And here in chapter 10, you get to watch Aaron do what is painful yet truthful. You see him follow every command. And at the end of it, in complete humility before God, says, I know that what I have is 100% given to me by God because I'm not holy. I'm not deserving of this individually because I'm not going to even eat what is, quote-unquote, commanded for me to eat. But he doesn't do it out of a belligerent attitude, thus God's pleasure with what takes place. In many ways, again, Aaron's shining moment, it's excruciatingly difficult for him. I think we all can see that. Uh, Whenever you're reading Scripture, walk with him in their shoes. Think about being Aaron and losing two sons at that time. Under all that pressure, he remains steadfast, locked into his Lord and his Lord's viewpoint. His actions during this time highlight God and bring glory to his name. Everything Aaron did pointed to God. When you don't eat what's holy, even though it's given to you to eat in a holy place because you're unholy, what are you saying? And unholy in comparison to who? The people? He's the most holy person walking theoretically at that time, right? God had just walked through seven days of burnt offerings and purification offerings. He's just offered for himself. He just lost two sons. The nation is wailing for him. He has to stand steadfast. Everything about him in comparison to any other person at that moment points to being holy. And he says, I'm not. Now that's the right testimony. And so he walks in bringing glory to God's name. It is God who is seen full of grace and mercy. Not Aaron. It's not like, wow, that Aaron, boy, that guy, that's, that's a servant of Christ. Look what he did. Nothing he does points to him. Everything is shifting to God, every single action he makes. And specifically at the end, he makes a very bold but quiet move to not do what he has the right to do to show that he knows who God is. Because it's not a beating down of himself He's actually seeing God as God is and recognizing that in comparison to God, we're people of unclean lips. We are dirty. We need him. Aaron lives out being God's man, a man who serves God's purpose, even in the toughest of times. And I put here a completely different look than the guy who made a golden calf. Aaron shows us what worship should look like and be focused upon. It's about God and who he is, not just how we feel about him and not contingent upon circumstances. You will walk into times of worship and not feel it. What are you supposed to do? Focus on God and worship. It's not about how you feel. I guarantee you Aaron's heart's broken. That he doesn't feel good at all. That he wants to weep and he wants to rip his hair out. And he wants to rip his clothes because he feels the agony, the sting of death. And we cannot walk away from that reality for him. Yet, when it comes to representing God and worshiping God, he is not going to give in to that feeling, but instead he's going to do what's right. It's painful, but it's truthful. And it's an understanding of this, that worship, though offered by each individual, must adhere to God's command and it must follow his plan. 
And so if you're looking for the biography of Aaron, I say Leviticus 10. There is Aaron in the most shining moment that he uh, could be in. 